Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by medicinal chemist and pharmacologist Samuel Bannister. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thank you. So we're talking about drugs, and you work on drugs that are, I guess we could call them good drugs and bad drugs. Is there a difference between the two, or is it just how we perceive them? Yeah, I don't know if there are such things as, as good drugs and bad drugs. I think there's just good and bad uses of drugs. Okay. So, yeah, it depends on, depends on what your question is, I guess. But there's nothing <sighs> chemical-wise where we can say, no, nope, that's good, that's bad type of thing. No, no. Um, you know, I think Paracelsus is, is quoted as saying everything... Um, is a poison at some dose, you know, to paraphrase him. So, um, yeah, it's really often about the dosage and the and the application of that drug. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think there are good drugs and bad drugs, just good and bad uses. Yeah. One of the ones you're working on at the Lambert Initiative here in the University of Sydney are cannabinoids, which, of course, we would think straight away of cannabis. Yep. So that's a great example of something where you have a thing that's a technically an illicit drug, but... There are uh, other products derived from the same source that can be good. What sort of products are you working on there? Yeah, cannabis is it's a really interesting plant, um, and you can tell that it's it's very popular because it's been spread across the world um, mm. with a lot of human use. So clearly, people find um, a number of uses for it. Um, it contains about 140 different phytocannabinoids. So these are um, cannabinoid molecules made by the plant. Um, the most famous of which is tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, as it's probably more commonly known. So this is the the component that um, activates the cannabinoid type 1 receptors in your brain and gets you high. Um, but obviously, in recent years, there's also been a lot of interest in this compound called cannabidiol. So this is another very abundant phytocannabinoid. Um, CBD is its acronym. Uh, and it's, it's used quite widely um, in the treatment of epilepsy, childhood epilepsies, amongst other things. Um, and in fact, the FDA just approved a formulation of CBD um, for Dravet syndrome, uh, which is a form of childhood epilepsy, um, last year. So clearly some utility there. And that's, you know, that's just two of the 140 that I mentioned. And so we're sort of focused on trying to understand, um, you know, what, what sort of positive effects these other 138 cannabinoids might have in, in human disease. The hemp plant itself is kind of like this this super plant the way people talk about it that it's great yeah. for fiber and manufacturing and you can get protein from it and all these wonderful chemicals but it's i guess it's link with illicit drugs has made it a little bit inaccessible and hard for people to embrace for all these properties is it hard to get the message out there that you can use it for medicine because of that link yeah, I think it's a it's a plant with a little bit of a, a history that's not entirely fair to the plant itself. I think mm. um, it's been sort of the the victim of a really long running smear campaign, I guess, since the 1920s and 30s. Um, but in the U.S. before that period, uh, hemp was actually grown really widely. So that the hemp plant itself um, is produced mostly for fiber. It's a different variety of cannabis mm. than the the flowering cannabis that's used for producing um, THC and, and other compounds. Yeah, no, I, I think there's been sort of a, um, a renewed interest in the plant as people have realised that a lot of the um, the reasons for cannabis prohibition were not actually founded in science. Like like a lot of forms of prohibition, they were sort of based on, on public sentiment and, and politics more than the science itself. Um, so there's definitely a lot of renewed interest. I mean, you've got most states in the US now allowing some form of cannabinoid product to be sold. Um, you've got 
various countries around the world completely decriminalizing or legalizing cannabis for both medicinal and recreational use. So I think we're at the start of a, a huge turn in sort of public sentiment around the value of this plant, both as a, a recreational drug, as a medicine, um, as a source of, of textiles and, and foods. Yeah, it's a good point that it's not just the one plant. There's many different strains of this kind of like broccoli and cauliflower come from the same plant. And whereas broccoli's great cauliflower will kill you, that type of stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's, I think the the two um, varieties. That's just my personal opinion about cauliflower, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that I guess the, the varieties of cannabis that people talk about are cannabis sativa, uh, cannabis indica and, and cannabis ruderalis, which is sort of a wild-growing cannabis in some parts of Asia. It's not really cultivated anywhere else. Mm. And people talk about them as if they're these really distinct um, varieties, but all this modern genotyping um, mm. has sort of shown us that, in fact, they've just been interbred for so long that you can't really talk about pure strains of cannabis anymore. Yeah, they're just yeah. sort of uh, hybrids and, and cultivars that people have developed over the years. And especially now that it's becoming a bigger business, people are going to be growing and developing their own strains. So there's a whole big... Yeah, it's like there's going to be best in show prizes soon. There already are. There's uh, <laughs> the, the High Times Cannabis Cup has been running since you know from way before cannabis was you know partially legalized in in the US. Yeah, it's been it's been running for years. I think mostly with uh, Dutch head shops and stuff growing different <laughs> different cultivars. We're we're going to learn a lot throughout this podcast about how much of a square I am and how little <laughs> I know about any of this stuff. <laughs> we're talking about the way there's been these smear campaigns about it and it's been given an unfair treatment lots of that history is sort of told in american history mm -hmm. and the battles that have been waged there about it has australia been similar it kind of almost feels like we've just been following their lead yeah i think this kind of stuff i think australia is really just little america isn't it we take mm. yeah you know we we like to think we're really independent but we sort of do just follow the uh, you know the u.s trend in, in a lot of these things in some ways we're actually much more conservative and and slower to adopt more progressive changes so mm. um yeah if you speak to um an interesting interesting colleague of mine reese cohen who follows the uh, approval processes through various regulatory schemes for accessing medicinal cannabis in australia and you know he's got a lot of stats collected on on just how difficult it is actually to obtain cannabis-based medicines in Australia compared to the US or Canada or Germany or elsewhere. And it's that's like, still the case? That's still the case, yeah. So the, the number of, um, it's through a regulatory process called the Special Access Scheme B, um, and we just have one of the longest, most laborious processes for actually accessing any cannabis-based medicine through this scheme, and the overall numbers of approvals are, are very low in terms of our population as well relative to other countries. You mentioned before that the FDA was approving things for use, and of course the FDA, that's the American yeah, the Federal Amer Drugs Administration, is that food, what it is? Food and Drug Administration, yeah. That's it. Yep. So using that as a reference, do we sort of look at what they're doing and assume that that will happen here? Uh, we we have Hopefully our own soon. Uh, yeah not not it's not a guarantee so we have our mm. own therapeutic goods administration the TGA and, and they sort of approve medicines for um, the Australian marketplace um, but yeah you know generally they will follow sort of the guidance of the FDA but we can't assume that they will in every yeah. case and and medicine, cannabis based medicines are sort of a funny area so the FDA approved um, a formulation a specific formulation um, of a product known as Epidiolex uh, manufactured by a company called GW Pharma so that's one. Um, one specified medicinal product mm. um, in Australia, you know, people want access to that product, but also to other products and maybe even to cannabis flower and other things. Um, so those sorts of products are a little bit harder to regulate. Mm. And marijuana as a recreational drug obviously has become more legal, I guess you'd say, over in the States. 
has that created any sort of ripple effect here? Yeah, I don't. I don't know that it has. I think if you if you look at the um, global drug survey data, apparently we're one of the largest sort of per capita consumers of cannabis. So mm. Australians certainly love cannabis for <laughs> recreational purposes. Um, but it's it, you know we haven't reached any sort of point where it's been broadly decriminalised. There was discussion of, of decriminalisation in the ACT um, for personal use for recreational medicine. Um, but yeah, in the US, it's it's now the case that like, I don't have the precise data to hand, but there are, I think there are about a dozen states that have um, legal recreational markets. So it's, yeah, it's very odd. I was living in California and if you'd visit Colorado or Washington state, you could, you could walk into a shop like it's a Starbucks and just mm. buy all sorts of smoking apparatus and, and a whole bunch of <laughs> cannabis flour and edibles and weird extracts, cannabis coffee, all sorts of wacky stuff. So yeah, very different experience once you have legalization, making these things, making these products commercially available. Yeah. I mean, there are obviously other drugs that are legal here, you know, alcohol or nicotine or whatever. So I guess it's just where each little uh, government or, or state or whatever draws the line as to what is acceptable to them or not. People who have listened to this podcast before will probably recognize your voice from the live podcast we did uh, a couple of months ago during National Science Week. And we didn't get to talk about it, but I asked you there in front of a live audience <laughs> whether you thought marijuana should be legal in Australia. And you emphatically just said yes. Yeah, I think I'd still hold that view. So if, we, <laughs> if you look at, there are a number of ways you can assess drug harms, right? And um, these include things like harm to the individual, harm to society, you know, extended health costs mm. from diseases related to use of those drugs. And, you know, I'll give you a guess as to which two drugs might be the most harmful on pretty much all scales. Is, is it the two that are legal that I just mentioned? <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Yeah, so it's, so it's alcohol and tobacco. We've come up with interesting ways to um, allow these drugs to continue to be used, um, to tax them, to regulate them. Mm. But the fact that they cause the most harm, um, that two of the most harmful drugs are legal, is, is not really a good argument for the prohibition of other drugs. And I think if you look at cannabis, yeah, it's, it definitely has its own um, particular set of risks, as all drugs do. Um, but I'd argue that it's it's safer than tobacco and it's certainly safer than alcohol for mm. sure. So it sort of doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, it's not prohibition is almost never based in science. It's always always based in politics. I feel like Australia in general has a bit of a I don't know immature attitude to substance use overall, just in the way that uh, yeah we we treat even things like alcohol uh, is very different to how Europeans would treat alcohol and taking that step to make marijuana legal I think would take a lot of maturity on the part of Australians and the Australian government. Do you think it's something that's possible? Yeah I'd, I'd like to think that with enough education and cultural change you know we can have nice things but it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely it's very true that you know if you travel around the world and you see a group of rowdy people pretty drunk getting up to no good or causing trouble it's you know a lot of the time it is a group of australians <laughs> and particularly a subset of like you know younger australian males um but yeah you, you generally don't see these same problems in other countries as you mentioned mm. the drinking culture in europe or in the us is actually quite different to here so we we do have some issues with sort of this this binge use culture which is you know it's definitely problematic mm. um extended to other drugs it becomes it becomes problematic but yeah hopefully it can be corrected with I don't know, educational campaigns and a little mm. bit of cultural change. Even just the way alcohol is still seen as quite taboo. I think it's changed a lot in recent years, but you think back to, I don't know, when I was a young teenager and you could only ever get alcohol in a bar. You couldn't get it in a restaurant or anywhere like that. It was this sort of either you're a normal, well-behaved person or you're in a seedy bar getting drunk. It's this sort <laughs> of very black or white 
approach to things, which probably causes more harm than good, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't looked at the, the policy implications enough to know, but we certainly do have a number around the world and in different states. Um, we do have a number of different approaches to regulating these things. And mm. it's pretty amazing how diverse these things are. Like, as you said, from availability of ethanol, even of, of alcohol from supermarkets in some some states or countries to only bars and others mm. or you know in the case of utah uh, only at bars and all takeaway beers are mid-strength <laughs> so you know there's yeah there are many different ways to regulate these things and it's ultimately down to to the policy makers in charge there's of that an state argument that if you do make things legal then there will be it'll be safer overall because it's regulated and things are made to standards as opposed to made in bathtubs or well, whatever I've yeah. seen on TV. <laughs> well, we, we did have this this short period, remember, where we, alcohol was prohibited and, <laughs> and that wasn't particularly good. In fact, what happened, uh, if, if you read most of the accounts, is that uh, alcohol as a product became more dangerous. Mm. <laughs> there was more harm associated with its use. Its production became controlled by organized crime gangs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's this is essentially what we see with basically every other illegal drug in the world currently. So um, from that perspective, at least, if we can find a way to regulate alcohol um, to a level that's acceptable broadly to society, then I think we can definitely do the same for, for other drugs, including cannabis. Yeah, it's one of the best things about alcohol is that if you want some, you don't need to turn to organized crime. It's yeah, I mean, it's it, really convenient that way. <laughs> It'd be very strange to go buy a bottle of some unlabeled spirit from a, a street <laughs> corner, you know, off an individual that you've never met before. It's The whole thing just seems completely bizarre and... Um, and improbable, but that's that's how it is for most other drugs at this point. Although I have seen some very trendy hipster brands of moonshine popping up in <laughs> bottle shops. It's coming yeah. back around full circle. It's cool again. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's still got a bit of a, a, bit of a lure. <laughs> you said that uh, cannabinoids, the ones you were working on, were very useful as epilepsy medication. Mm -hmm. What makes them good medication for epilepsy? That's that's a great question, and that's sort of one of the questions we're, we're trying to okay. answer broadly. Um yeah, so THC that I mentioned is psychoactive. Most of these other cannabinoids are not actually psychoactive. So cannabidiol, CBD, is, is not psychoactive. Um, and it interacts with the cannabinoid type 1 receptor that I mentioned, but it also interacts with a whole host of other receptors in the body. Um, so its effects in epilepsy are attributed to actions at a number of these different sites, different targets that, that may or may not be part of the our body's endogenous cannabinoid system, the endocannabinoid system. Um, but the short answer is no one knows precisely how it is so effective in, in various forms of epilepsy, and that's something we're trying to, to work to understand. So these receptors, mm -hmm. are they in our brains specifically? Like that's where they're situated physically within us? Not, not specifically. So the distribution for the CB1 receptor, um, it's, it's the most abundant um, G-protein coupled receptor in the brain. So of that huge class of, of receptors, mm -hmm. it is one of the most abundant, but it's also expressed elsewhere in the GI tract and in the heart. Okay. Um, the CB2 receptor, which is the other sort of main cannabinoid receptor in the body, it's primarily an immune receptor. So it's actually expressed um, in, in bone marrow and in white cells and plays sort of a role in, um, in controlling inflammation. All right. So two very different receptors with very different functions, both activated by sort of a common set of some cannabinoids. All right, so we know that they're reacting to these chemicals. Are we sure about what the actual biochemical process is that makes it all happen? No, it's it's an ongoing process yeah. of learning. Like, yeah, we know quite a bit about what they do, but it's like all science. It's uh, there are gaps in our knowledge that still need to be resolved. So, I mean, obviously, as we were saying before, when people think of cannabinoids, they think of cannabis and how it would affect your brain as a drug. Are the same psychoactive compounds that are firing off whenever someone uses these recreational drugs? Are they the same 
chemicals or different chemicals that are what are being used in medicine? Yeah, I've had had a few discussions uh, with our academic director, uh, Professor Ian McGregor, about this exact topic. And you know, how how do you define a cannabinoid? Because actually, it's mm. this word that a lot of non-scientists have trouble saying, but it's also actually uh, quite imprecisely defined. So cannabinoids, that the term comes from the fact that um, cannabis produces these molecules. Therefore, it makes sense to call them cannabinoids. Mm. When we discovered that some of these molecules actually activate endogenous receptors within our own body, um, those receptors got termed cannabinoid receptors. Okay. Um, and then, obviously, if our body has receptors for these exogenous molecules, these foreign molecules, it must have a use for them um, endogenously as well. So we actually produce our own endogenous cannabinoids, endocannabinoids. Uh, these are these sort of fatty acid derivatives, um, things like anandamide, um, tuacaronodonol, arachidonyl glycerol, 2-AG, is mm-hmm. another common one. Um, so these are present in our body at all times, um, maintaining sort of homeostasis of different things and sort of controlling a number of functions. So already there you've got sort of naturally occurring cannabinoids that look nothing like the molecules that come out of cannabis. And then you've got a whole mm. class of synthetic cannabinoids as well. And these, again, are very structurally different. Um, they may activate the CB1 receptor, they may block the CB1 receptor. So you've got a whole host of different molecules, a lot of structural diversity and a lot of different function. Um, so you have compounds in the cannabis plant that don't actually activate the endogenous cannabinoid receptor system at all. So we call these things cannabinoids because they're from yeah. cannabis, but they're not even involved in our own physiology probably. Yeah, that's uh, right. I didn't even realize that I was making that assumption that <laughs> they were somehow chemically molecularly s- yeah. similar because they had this same name, cannabinoid, no, the, the, but the it's name just that they come from the same place. It's just an interesting sort of scientific historical artifact. Yeah. There's, there's nothing really uniting all cannabinoids. I mean, you know, what, what does the term cannabinoid even mean? It's actually yeah. really hard to define. So it's, a, it's a descriptor rather than anything technical about them. Yeah, that's true. And when you're doing this research, does the legality of certain drugs affect your ability to do research? Is it just logistically harder to get approval to run experiments and get these chemicals to actually develop drugs with? Yeah, it definitely is. So there are a number of so compounds that are derived from cannabis, meaning you know cannabis is the source of the molecules where they're extracted from that plant. Those products are under the control um, or regulated by the Office of Drug Control. And then in New South Wales, um, New South Wales Health controls our ability to work with compounds that are either um, prohibited, so sort of Schedule 9 compounds, or controlled drugs, sort mm. of Schedule 8 uh, and below. So one of the interesting consequences of having these sort of really illogical laws is that actually cannabidiol, CBD, um, as a research chemical is Schedule 8, um, but as a clinical drug, it's Schedule 4. So it's actually more regulated to put it into cells or into a mouse than it is to give it to a person. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it does, doesn't make a lot of sense. Like a lot of drug policy, it's, yeah. it's very illogical. Um, but the short answer is, yeah, we do need special authorities, and that depends on whether – it depends on the classification of the drug, um, its schedule, and – what we plan to do with it, whether it's going only into cells, whether we're just making it for analysis, whether it's going into mice or into people. But yeah, we, we generally have a number of um, authorities from New South Wales Health to do everything from just possessing these things, uh, in some cases supplying them, and in some cases manufacturing them if we need to, to design a new molecule that's related to something that, that is controlled. Is that your persistent link being made between the chemicals you're working on and illicit drugs frustrating? Because... I don't know, I feel like this area of research, we always sort of go in with a little wink and a giggle, saying, ha, ha, weed, ha, ha, type of thing. <laughs> Whereas if, I don't know, if you were working on a, a opioid painkiller, I probably wouldn't bring up a link to heroin or something, right? 
Yeah, I guess, yeah, cannabis has a lot of, I mean, it is one of the most widely used um, illicit substances, if you still consider it an illicit substance. So you have a few hundred million people reporting use in the last year across the globe. So I guess it has a lot of um, a lot of cultural heritage as well in yeah. that way. So, you know, there are a lot of jokes in popular culture about cannabis. <laughs> it's it's probably the most, one of the most widely recognized drugs, even amongst people who don't use cannabis. So yeah, I think for that reason, you do get, you know, picture of a leaf or yeah. it, it does attract a certain level of sort of, of humor in some cases, I think. Do you think we just need to remove that association from just a marketing perspective? No, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know if you'll ever be able to entirely remove it. It's, yeah. And with the work you're doing, are you actually developing drugs to a point where they can be brought to market? Yeah, so the, the drug development process um, is very, very slow and very, very expensive. So mm. the, t- the total cost these days to bring a drug to market from sort of conception through successful sort of phase three trials averages about 12 to 15 years and the cost you know the cost estimates vary but it's sort of upwards of a billion dollars at this point so it's a very very lengthy process very very expensive uh, and attrition at almost every point so you're much more likely to to fail than to succeed that's the Mm. unfortunate reality Uh, we do things at the preclinical end so we're actually designing new molecules um, sort of analyzing their their structure and their purity and then the aim is to take them into cellular models to show that they actually have an effect on a cellular model of the disease. And from there, we might move into an animal model of a disease. Um, and at that point, if you've shown efficacy up to sort of a, a rodent level um, in some model of your disease, then you're probably um, heading in the right direction. But that alone is certainly not enough to take it to the clinic. So there's a whole bunch more investigation to be done from that point before you start considering something like a, a phase one trial for, for safety in people. So uh, as you said, a cellular model, that would be looking at things in a Petri dish. Yeah, yeah more an animal model would be giving it to rats. Yep, that's basically it. Yeah, so yeah. we have we have a number of um, there are different genetic models of epilepsy, um, and, and we use a few of those uh, in our laboratories. Um, so these are these are mice that are predisposed to having seizures, often because they have a, a problem with the same gene that causes the disease in in humans. So they produce these um, ion channels or receptors that are dysfunctional in some way, um, as they do in the human disease. Hopefully, that's the mm. idea that the model. Um, is pretty high fidelity and shows some degree of, of translatability, but that's also not always the case. Where do you start? Do you start with the disease or the chemicals? And if it's the chemicals, is it just, are we just going through one by one to see if anything does oh, anything? It'll be, it would take a very long time. So <laughs> yeah, I think historically it's an interesting um, point in, in drug discovery for disorders of the brain or the central nervous system. Um, historically, we sort of did just stumble upon some interesting chemical matter and we'd generally skip a lot of the cellular stuff because it wasn't that developed and we go straight into a mouse to see what it did you know this mm-hmm. is back in the, the 50s and 60s and this is how we were able to develop a lot of really interesting drugs really quickly <laughs> um, but it's obviously not exactly a, an entirely rational process and so the trends now in, in drug discovery are to start um, to start at the end think about your disease look at um, things that might be causing that disease at sort of a, a protein level and then try to develop chemical matter that can correct the disease by correcting that protein. That's sort of the approach. Um, and then there are a number of different ways you can do that in terms of f- identifying that that bit of chemical matter. Um, yeah, that's a whole whole field unto itself. And is that something you can make a decision as to which chemical you're going to go to based on simply the chemical structure as some sort of feature that you know from previous work might do a similar thing? Yeah, yeah, that's part of a, a process um, of lead optimization. So the, uh, the initial step is to identify some chemical matter and that can be done through something like high throughput screening where you might just have literally millions of random molecules and you'll use a really high throughput robotic assay just to screen them and see which ones show any activity. 
or more commonly, um, you'll have some sort of privileged chemical matter already. So this is why natural products, things like cannabinoids, are, are kind of interesting because you know, we know that a lot of them are already effective in humans. They already have passed sort of a number of hurdles to have any sort of effect in a living system. Um, and from that point, from either standpoint, you, you take that chemical matter and then you're trying to optimize it for a number of things. So um, it needs to have sort of suitable metabolism that it's not broken down too quickly um, or too slowly. It needs to be able to interact with its desired target um, at a certain potency that makes dosing in humans reasonable. Um, ideally, it can be orally dosed because people generally don't like needles or mm-hmm. or suppositories. So hopefully you can just have an oral tablet. Um, if, it's, if it's for a drug that... Um, if, if it's a drug for something, a disease that affects the brain, then it actually needs to bypass the blood-brain barrier as well, and that comes with its own challenges. So, yeah, we start out with molecule A, and then through many, many iterations um, and a lot of sort of multi-parameter optimization, we hope to end up with a, a drug, you know, many, uh, many molecules down the line. And I guess at every one of these little iterative steps, you'll be able to see, I guess, A, whether there's any potential positive effects, neutral effects, and then negative effects. If there's any sign of negative effects even at a cellular level is that when you just go all right no move on next one yeah there's no there's no hard and fast rules but there are things that are certainly avoided so yeah if you see um, early signs of cellular toxicity or issues with metabolism or or toxic metabolites being formed you're probably not going to continue with that particular class or that that series of molecules um, because it's very likely to to cause troubles down the line in the clinic if it makes it that far so yeah you Mm. can you can definitely um, you can definitely cull pretty heavily early on and that's um, often for long-term advantage mm. uh, by the time you reach the clinic. And we spoke a little bit about epilepsy as an example of something that can be treated with these things. Are there other common diseases or disorders that we're looking to cannabinoids to try and treat? Yeah, people are looking at a, a whole host of different things. So um, there's some interest in, and a lot of this has been sort of community-driven. So it's sort of um, people in the community saying, hey, I'm using cannabis for this particular condition and now science can can finally play catch-up and go back and have a look if there's um, any sort of underlying reason as to efficacy in these different conditions. So um, people have looked at cannabinoids for the treatment of different cancers, at least in the in vitro level. Um, I think in glioblastoma, a particularly aggressive brain cancer, they've looked at um, a cannabis formulation in addition to the, the primary treatments um, with some efficacy. But often these are very small small groups of patients. But yeah, I'd say many, many conditions you can probably find, um, I hesitate to say most, but you look up most conditions, you can probably find some evidence of someone looking at a cannabinoid-based um, method for treating them at least preclinically, and, and in some cases with clinical studies too. And I think that's just because the endocannabinoid system's so fundamental in the human body. It's involved in so many different processes, really quite um, diverse and disparate processes. Yeah, in the same way we're talking about the hemp plant being a super plant capable of absolutely everything. I feel like, especially now that uh, things are becoming more common and more legal in the states people are talking about cbd like it will cure mm. everything i don't know if you ever listen to the joe rogan podcast you walk yeah, away from yeah, those thinking little it's going to send you to space <laughs> and back type of <laughs> you, know, yeah. you can use it for muscle pain and headaches and anxiety and everything is it as super and amazing as it's being made out by some people I, I just don't think we have enough data to support mm. a lot of the claims. So it definitely has utility. I mean, it's passed a number of um, very serious, very large clinical trials in, in Dravet syndrome um, and Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. So that's what it, you know the Epidiolex formulation was approved for. There's certainly evidence for it having efficacy in other conditions, but a lot of the data is just not there. Mm. Um, so the, you know, the FDA was sort of set up to prevent people making outrageous claims about their snake oils historically. <laughs> this is precisely why it exists. Um, but because CBD is sold 
um, as a food or supplement. It's not sold as a drug. Okay. People can, can bypass claims. There have been cases in the US recently where people have made medical claims about cannabidiol products and they've received you know letters from the FDA asking them to, to stop doing that. <laughs> because, yeah, for a lot of these conditions, there is no evidence. Unless you've run a decent-sized trial and shown an effect, you can't make medical claims about those products. So what's the process then for releasing it as a supplement do you just have to show that it's not going to kill you yeah i think i think it has to be sort of generally recognized as safe as, as mm. a lot of food supplements do but that regulation of food supplements in the u.s is is much less rigorous than regulation of drugs yeah it does feel a bit like when you walk through the protein powder aisle of a supermarket exactly. <laughs> there's yeah. all sorts of outrageous claims being made yeah and a lot of those in a in a random tangent a good colleague of mine um, professor roy Girona at ucsf has had a good look at um, just what's in some of these supplements, you know, these pre-workout supplements and things. And some some huge number of them actually contain substances that are not illegal but also not regulated. So things with, okay. with known pharmacology that you may not be aware you're taking that might actually be quite bad for you. So it's definitely, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a bit of a concern, the consumer sort of dietary supplement market for sure. Yeah, and CBD sounds like it's probably going to be the next big thing. It'll be a matter of time before it's the new... Muscle building. Oh, it's it's just protein. well. You know, I mean, hemp protein's big, and you're hearing about CBD as treating muscle aches and joint pain and everything. So CBD as a dose in humans is used at like hundreds of milligrams to grams, depending on you know the the weight of the person, what's being treated, and you'll see products with you know five milligrams of CBD per <laughs> lozenge, just probably having no effect whatsoever. It's it's pretty close to homeopathy um, and we're getting it's just getting even more silly I feel like anytime I scroll through Twitter I see a, a new ad or someone posting someone from the cannabis community posting a, a ridiculous product mm. um, that they've come across like a you know CBD infused pillow CBD infused leggings um, I saw the other day which I thought was rather bizarre I don't know how that topically it's meant to it's, assist yeah, your muscle like recovery or something quilts and stuff Jeez. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a little bit like that it's there's no good scientific basis for most of these products and people should probably spend their money on other things, you know, give it to charity, do something else useful yeah, with it. Yeah, it's got to be very frustrating because people would sort of make an association between that stuff and the work that you do, right? Yeah, I think I think a lot of um, a lot of the public are not especially well informed on like the most recent findings in the sciences, and that's completely understandable. Um, so, you know, I think there is some responsibility for people working in the field to sort of explain. Uh, more broadly, why these CBD supplements are, are not such a good idea for, for many conditions. Mm. Um, yeah. As well as looking at uh, the way that drugs can be used for diseases and things, you're also looking at the effect that certain illicit drugs do have on people. I imagine that's pretty hard to study because you can't exactly run a clinical trial of what ecstasy is doing to a person right actually you can really okay <laughs> yeah so there have been not not in australia you can't because we're far <laughs> far too conservative for that kind of thing um but we we collaborate with a group at maastricht university a psychopharmacology group there um and they actually have run a num and, and actually other parts of the u.s are doing this as well so mm. um yeah johns hopkins has run some trials um imperial college in london has run some trials but they're actually uh, yeah a lot of people giving um either healthy volunteers or patients various psychedelics or MDMA and, and seeing what sort of effects these things have. So um, MDMA is currently in some very large-scale trials for post-traumatic stress disorder in conjunction with psychotherapy. Um, and psilocybin from magic mushrooms is getting a lot of attention for treatment of um, end-of-life anxiety related to sort of terminal cancers um, as well as major depression. So I think mm -hmm. it was actually just 
a major depressive disorder, it was just granted um, FDA breakthrough therapy designation, which means in the trials that have been run, it dramatically outperformed the current standard of care to the point that it's now eligible for certain um, regulatory fast tracking, which is pretty neat. So yeah, you definitely can give these compounds to people. I mean, it's, it's very <laughs> odd to think that MDMA is an illicit drug, yet it's also safe enough to undergo very large phase two proceeding to phase three studies in people. So it's almost like the fact that these have been recreational drugs they're almost like little weird unofficial pilot studies, right? Because you can look at how they've been used recreationally and look at the effects they've had and almost use that as a indicator of what clinical effects they might have. I mean, using marijuana as an example, you know, colloquially it should reduce anxiety. Would that have been a little hint to say, well, maybe we could be used in a clinical sense to reduce anxiety and things. Yeah, that, that is a lot of the work that's going on um, at Lambert Initiative and elsewhere is looking at these at sort of um, anecdotal evidence from the community as to what conditions these things might be effective in because it is pretty hard to ignore that information. I mean, mm. if you have, um, you know, someone with Tourette's or someone with MS or Parkinson's disease saying, yeah, I, I use this cannabis oil product and I get these amazing effects, it's, um, it's either sort of a very effective placebo or something's going on there. So these are definitely interesting questions that, that science can attempt to answer. Mm. Um, but you certainly can't ignore those those reports, I don't think. And if we're struggling to know what sort of the processes and biology behind clinical drugs are, I'm guessing we're really far behind in understanding how actual recreational drugs are working at uh. a cellular, you know, molecular level. In, in some ways, recreational drugs get more attention, I think, because, really? yeah, I, I don't know. So a clinical drug will be rigorously evaluated um, in a certain number of people. So we do collect a lot of data, but um, typically that will be by one pharmaceutical company um, or a small consortium of groups. But recreational drugs, on the other hand, will be studied by many, many different groups around the world. Tons of researchers will okay. look at the same drug or its effect on different things. So I think you just get different different sorts of information from the two different approaches. So the fact that clinical drugs have commercial ties, does that mean people can kind of patent them and put their stamp on it and actually make it harder for other people to work on them? Yeah, that's that's generally the trajectory for drug development. So because it's this, this process is so expensive, there has to be financial incentives for drug companies to recoup some of that investment. That's generally how it works. So the way you do that is upon discovery of an interesting class of molecules that you hope to turn into a drug, um, you file a patent, which gives you exclusivity usually around those molecules and their application. Um, and that's that's essentially how, how drug companies recover the, the cost, not only of the current drug they're trying to develop, but, you know, the nine programs that failed entirely in order to bring that one drug yeah, to market. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a very, it's a sort of mind-blowingly expensive business <laughs> drug development. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting that it, it would, yeah, I didn't expect it to be easier to study recreational drugs because of that hurdle. For these labs that are doing these uh, controlled trials of recreational drugs, are they using healthy participants? Are they using previous drug users, depending on their question? Uh, generally, yeah, you try to exclude people who are currently um, using various drugs because that might be a confounder, just like you would in any um, phase one clinical trial. Mm. So they're generally seeking, um, it depends on the, the nature of the study, but they're generally seeking healthy participants. Um, for the clinical applications of things like psilocybin and MDMA, they're obviously seeking certain population groups that fit their, their mm. criteria for a condition. Uh, yeah, but I'm thinking about the group at, at Maastricht University who has this psychopharmacology lab. Um, they generally just study drugs that are being used in the Netherlands and elsewhere, and they want to understand things um, mm. about their pharmacokinetics, their potential toxicity. So in those cases, they will be um, usually healthy volunteers. 
Yeah, I guess you'd need their samples of healthy people tanking these drugs so you know what's happening so you can treat whatever uh, medical problems might come from an overdose or being used incorrectly. But I imagine that's a constant sort of running into the wind battle with new drugs always hitting the market and trying to find out what's in them in the first place and why they work and how they work. Yeah, that's that's a bit of the work that we do in the, the new cannabinoid space because this is actually um, a large class of new recreational drugs are, are these synthetic cannabinoids. So these were things that were developed uh, primarily as cannabis substitutes. So this is for people who might be drug tested at work. So in Australia, people in the mining community, people who work in transport, uh, they didn't want to test positive for cannabis, so they go buy these other th- other products right. that were sold as um, smoking blends, um, <laughs> and they were or, or incense, and they would always say on the packet, not for human consumption, but they're just these bright little foil packets with various brands on them, um, filled with like a herbal matrix, usually Damiana or something, but they're actually laced with these um, synthetic cannabinoids. Uh, and so what we've seen in the last 10 years is it started out as just a handful of molecules that that were developed from academic labs and someone's... Uh, taken those molecules and gone off and, and had them turned into <laughs> these products. Um, but now we're, we've seen several hundred of these things developed in the last 10 years all around the world. And there has been this trend for increasing potency. And we're now seeing, in the US at least, uh, and New Zealand actually, mass overdoses and fatalities with these things in a way that we weren't seeing even 10 years ago. So there's, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of urgency to sort of understand um, what makes these drugs toxic, how they're having these toxic effects. Um, and so some of the work we do is is the first characterization of these substances in, in cells or in mice. I mean, we've all seen Breaking Bad and know that being a drug dealer pays way better than being a researcher. So it's <laughs> kind of not surprising that people might skip out of labs and <laughs> do other yeah. things with their discoveries. <laughs> yeah, I think there's been a real shift in, in the way this work is done. And so this idea of, you know, a Walter White style loan clandestine <laughs> chemist, it's, it actually doesn't even work like that anymore. You just have these very large organized crime groups uh, importing precursor chemicals from China, precursor chemicals or drugs that are not quite controlled, importing them into hubs in in Europe or in the US, and then and formulating them for sale from there. So it's it's just the yeah the industrialization of of uh, the drug markets, I guess. As someone that works in the field, though, is that genuinely a thing that happens? Like, do you ever have to sign a waiver saying, "I swear, I'm not gonna." Use my skills for evil. Oh, on almost every piece of equipment that, that you buy, you know, on every chemical you order, anything, you know, yeah, you must sign away uh, end user declaration saying you're not planning to make any illicit drugs. And yeah, that's generally how it goes for a lot of scientific equipment. In terms of keeping up to date with recreational drugs and understanding them, is it just a matter of time of waiting to see what hits the scene and then reacting to that, finding out what's in a new drug and how it works? Or can we kind of predict? where recreational drugs might go and prepare ourselves for them. Yeah, there, there are a lot of groups um, thinking about this exact problem, and I'm, I'm a big fan of the work being done by the European Monitoring Centre for Drugs and Drug Addiction. So they prepare these really highly detailed um, reports on, on various aspects of the drug trade in Europe. And by sort of monitoring the trends in, in new drugs of abuse, um, I think we can be a little bit more proactive than we have been historically. So the way that um, toxicologists and police labs and things will work is they often find a new substance, they try to identify it, um, someone needs to develop a reference standard to continue to, to study the, the sort of analysis of that compound and its detection in, in biological samples. Um, but the rate of drugs appearing now is, is so rapid that that approach sort of breaks down. Um, and by the time we respond to it, so we identify a new drug, um, 
legislatively we try to control it in some way that whole process is so slow and takes so long that by the time you do it that drug's not even really in circulation anymore it's been replaced by another two or 10 or 20 different mm. drugs that are closely related um, so the approach that that we've been taking and thinking about new cannabinoids that appear um, is to use sort of a, a matrix uh, and look at drugs that have appeared and the subunits that make them up and then apply those subunits to uh, different combinations of subunits that we've seen um, in previous versions of those cannabinoids. Um, and we do this in partnership with a number of sort of police labs, government labs, um, and toxicology colleagues from around the world. So we sort of do have our finger on the pulse in terms of um, what's emerging at the moment. And, and we sort of proactively prepare these things, characterize them, and share them with, um, with other labs who want to study them um, without necessarily publishing the structures of these new substances. And then every now and again, yeah, we find out that hey, this compound that you predicted has turned up in, in a patient blood sample in Denver or something through our, our toxicology network in the US. Okay. So, yeah, so you can be a little bit proactive about it, I think. You'll, you know, you cast a wide sort of net in terms of chemical space and um, a lot of things will slip through, but I think you can be a little bit more proactive about it. I mean, my next question was going to be, as a person sitting in an office wearing a suit doing stuff, how do you get your hands on the most hip new drugs <laughs> well, is it through working with police and things like that yeah generally we, yeah. we have really good networks um with a lot of the the government labs in australia um and these are people who are usually affiliated with police groups in each state who are looking at detecting these things in seizures or in um in biological samples um yeah so it's, it's just through these networks we we keep really up to date with the um the latest information releases from from europe and from the u.s through these networks and i imagine that this sort of hunt for a higher potency that you were talking about with recreational drugs. Again, as a total square and not really knowing a lot about how this works, I imagine that lots of that purely comes from the fact that it's illicit and illegal. And if these things were legalized or regulated, that there wouldn't be so much pressure to make the strongest, hardest, heaviest thing ever. I mean, uh, again, alcohol is a great example people aren't really hunting for the strongest alcohol they can get. Yeah, no, no one drinks E100, you know. It's, no. uh, it's, it's not a thing. So, yeah, I think it's very hard to know with a lot of these um, new psychoactives that are emerging whether this is user-driven um, in terms of potency increase or just basic market economics because one of the things that happens uh, as you make a drug more potent is that you need less of it which means you need to manufacture less of it okay. transport less of it so um, if you look at the drug trade uh, from central america to the u.s um, in the 60s and 70s it sort of moved from cannabis to cocaine once crime groups realized that you can actually make a lot more money per unit volume with cocaine than with cannabis so there is sort of a market drive for low volume drugs um, and drugs that are high potency uh, in terms of the profit margin per dose increasing quite enormously. So we're at the point now with some of these cannabinoids. I'm speaking to a colleague of mine, um, Craig McKenzie, who works in, in the UK prison system trying to detect these things. He said some of these things are so potent now that they are appearing um, like LSD on blotter. So they'll find <laughs> prisoners getting letters where the letters have coded words and just a bit of the drug, a solution has been dropped on and allowed to dry. And oh, you can geez. smoke this little three mil by three mil square of paper and get, get high from it so they're now having to like scan scan mail and, and give people um scanned copies of original letters and he said once they took out um they banned smoking in, in uk prisons uh they started scanning a lot of the mail instead of giving people paper and he said they've just had their first few cases of um cannabinoids hidden in socks so actually impregnated <laughs> into into cotton in t-shirts and socks so 
yeah, there's there's always some innovative way to get these things. Um, where I mean, they you kind of got to admire the ingenuity of that, right? <laughs> yeah, there, there will always be innovators out there willing to to do whatever it takes to get a product from where it's manufactured to where where the users are. And it goes without saying that if you're buying a recreational drug illegally, you don't know what you're getting. Yeah, of course not. I mean, this is this is why we have drug checking services around the world. Um, trying to monitor these things. I mean, not in Australia, of course, where <laughs> we just we couldn't allow something sensible like pill testing. <laughs> there would be far too much harm reduction, and we couldn't have that. Um, but yeah, in a lot of places around the world, um, mostly most heavily in Europe, in different countries, yeah, there have been drug checking services operating for 30 years, really without incident, who do just this exact service. So um, users bring their drugs in, and someone tells them what's in there, and that generally they shouldn't take drugs anyway and that there are additional <laughs> harms associated with these drugs. And, yeah, the language of the, all these services is always very negative. It's always about the harms associated with drugs. Um, but, yeah, you can at least get an answer as to what is in a given substance. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot about introducing pill testing to things like music festivals. And it is a very emotionally driven, heated argument mm. because it sounds like you're facilitating drug use or encouraging drug use but when it is used how does it work yeah i think it, one of the really sad things about pill testing as someone who knew nothing about it uh you know a year ago and, and decided to learn um is that it's just really misunderstood extremely mm. maybe more so than any other <laughs> current topic um so the way it works if you look at a group like the loop in the uk who have been doing this um in the field at large scale uh, festivals um, essentially a patron comes up with a drug they hand that drug over to the service. Um, they're given a slip of paper, like a, a deli counter ticket, that the <laughs> other ones match to the drug. So the number identifies the drug only, not the person. Um, that drug's then analyzed, um, and they're told to come back in 30 minutes or so. Um, the drug's analyzed. The service user then has an intervention with a health worker, and this is sometimes a GP um, or a social worker or someone else who explains um, the results of the drug testing to them. Um, but what's what's really interesting is just how many bits of misinformation get repeated. So there's never any mm. green lighting. So most of these services will never hand a drug back. No one gets gets their drugs back. It's <laughs> it, you hand it in and you get to find out what was in yeah. that one sample. Um, and all of the language is extremely negative. So at no point is anyone ever given a thumbs up or a green light. It's always about sort of the harms around drug use. And and I think the most important thing is that having drug testing occur in the same place where you're given an intervention um, and a sort of non-identifiable intervention. You don't go in and, and tell the doctor who you are. You just sit down with them and they have a chat. And this, for many people, young people especially, this might be the first time they've ever had an honest mm. discussion about drugs yeah. with a doctor in their entire lives. So that's where the real value is because they're much more likely to believe a health message from a doctor than from you know, their GP. They're not going to admit drug use to probably and they're not going to listen to their parents or a police officer mm. but if you know if a doctor sits down and tells you that hey you know this drug can have really serious consequences and here are the harms um people actually do change their behaviors and so there have been some a couple of academic reports now from the loops efforts and one of the really interesting things um you, you hear this argument that people aren't just going to throw out drugs they bought but that's that's exactly what they found so <laughs> so if people were trying to buy you know ecstasy mdma but had actually brought one of these had bought one of these new cathinones that's sometimes sold uh, mislabeled as MDMA. Once the testing revealed that, about sixty percent of patrons would just throw that substance out. They didn't want to take it. Um, <laughs> and often these substances, these cathinones, are much more harmful than MDMA. Yeah. So right there, you've got sixty percent of people choosing to engage in a less harmful behaviour. So that's almost certainly going to have positive health impacts, in, mm. in my opinion. And I think it would be great for it to be seen at things like a music festival because I feel like a festival goer would look at some something like that and assume that it would be, I don't know, monitored by the police or something. And if they 
come up and show them what drugs they've got, they're going to get in trouble or arrested or something. But these are a, a safe space, really. Yeah. You can go up, show them what you've got. They will test it and then tell you what it is. I, I think in the Loops model in the UK, they have a really interesting um, just physical solution to this, which is just sort of a double barrier. So it's like mm. a tent within a tent. So there's one entrance and then you've got to walk a little way around a corner to the entrance to the actual drug checking tent. So there's mm. no way for anyone to confirm that someone from the outside, that someone went in, yeah. actually used the service or not. So yeah. yeah, and they generally have a bit of an amnesty and, and I've spoken to the founder of the Loop, uh, Fiona Misham, about this. And when they were first rolling out trials, they had full support of the police, but it was very cagey, a lot of police there watching um, the samples go through this whole screening cascade uh, and, you know, all the drugs are then passed into this bin for destruction and, and early on the police were coming by and picking up this locked bin, you know, mm. with a lot of security and, and by the end of the day they more or less had, had complete trust in, in the loop yeah, to do this yeah. professionally and so they would just, <laughs> we'll be back in another hour and pick up the, the bin of drugs again for <laughs> destruction. So, yeah, you know, there's a certain professionalism about these services I think that's, that's not entirely well understood by the yeah. people who are opposed to them. Even just the people that are using these services, even if they are, continue to be recreational drug users, they're going to be pretty sensible about it. Like a person that just wants to get wrecked isn't going to bother sitting down and talking with a GP about what they're about to do, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably true. But I, yeah, I think it's 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 really about that combination of of some analytical results, which is sort of the draw, and this intervention where hopefully someone will actually listen to a doctor. Mm. Um, yeah, not not everyone will take every bit of advice, obviously, but I think it's yeah, it's really important that that young people are having these discussions with with a doctor, especially if they don't understand what these drugs um, what these drugs do or, or the effects of these drugs in, in some mm. cases. My question is, how often do people use these services, and the person has to turn around and say, "You got a bag of sherbet." Like. <laughs> <laughs> I think they've they've done some trials. Uh, they have done a few pill testing trials in in the ACT here, and mm. um, and yeah, you'll find all sorts of wacky stuff. Unsurprisingly, in, in sort of illicit <laughs> tablets, it's yeah, it goes without saying. Probably at, at the less harmful end, you've probably got things like breath mints and <laughs> and, and paracetamol <laughs> being sold as ecstasy. But at the the more extreme end, who know? I've I heard about um, certain types of paint and, and other bizarre things being in in tablets. So who, who knows? <laughs> yeah. So you're working here in the Brain and Mind Center yeah. at Sydney Uni. You're within the Lambert Initiative, which yep. is doing all this work looking at cannabinoids and potential clinical and therapeutic uses. Yep. What else goes on in this center? Uh, a whole host of really, really interesting work, actually. So, yeah, the Brain and Mind Centers, um, yeah, it's a brilliant sort of translational center. And the idea is that a lot of the preclinical work that's happening will, will translate into real clinical outcomes. So, um yeah, I think there's everything from, there's a lot of focus on neurodegeneration and neurodegenerative disorders, um, movement disorders. Um, there's so that'd be things like multiple sclerosis yeah, type of stuff? Yeah, MS, Parkinson's disease. Um, and there are a number of, of neurologists and other clinicians who work in the building who see patients from the community. Um, there's a youth uh, mental health uh, service on the ground floor. There's a gambling problem gambling clinic, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. So yeah, doing some really cutting edge work. Um, using various forms of intervention and um, and some pretty advanced technologies there. So, yeah, a whole whole host of stuff goes on here. Mm. Get, get on the website and have a look. It does sound like a weird mix having, you know, drug centres and gambling centres in the same yeah, building. I mean, but even as you were talking about <laughs> things like the way that people are treated in these pill testing centres, straight away I thought that's a bit like the language around gambling where you can go yeah. and gamble, but there's still all these signs up saying, please don't gamble. Yeah, we're, we're very prolific gamblers in Australia. So it makes a lot, <laughs> makes a lot of sense to have a... a, cent, a um, gambling research group here um, yeah I think I can't remember what the stats are on that but we're definitely up there per capita like top five 
yeah. per capita for money spent on gambling each year in this country is pretty pretty wild. I guess that's what happens when you have poker machines in you know every pub in every city. Yeah, <laughs> it's an would unusual much, situation. <laughs> I'd much rather be walking into a RSL and seeing a wall of recreational drugs I could buy instead of. <laughs> A wall of pokies I could oh, be playing. Okay. I, I was thinking even neither of those, maybe just some live music or other <laughs> entertainment or, you know, something like that, yeah. And the work that goes on here, you're always looking for participants and volunteers to take part in these studies, right? Yeah, th- there's often participants in the form of patients. So the, the Lambert Initiative itself is running a number of um, open-label trials with cannabinoids. We do a lot of surveys that, that always need participants. Um, a number of the clinicians here will see patients referred on from elsewhere. But yeah, there's, there's always a whole bunch of really interesting research going on. Um, a lot of it seeking either healthy volunteers or, or participants that meet certain criteria for a condition. And because you're doing work on cannabinoids, does that make it harder or easier to get participants? Do people kind of look at it and go, oh, I want to I try that? Yeah, you'd think it would be, you'd think it'd be a, a big draw, but actually, um, yeah, it's a little more complicated than that. So it really depends on the exclusion criteria. So if you have a study that um, you know, has a really strict requirements around a very small cohort of patients, then obviously it's going to be harder like to attract. You might attract. be looking for people with a particular condition a particular condition, but not any of these side effects. Sorry, mm. not, not any of these other uh, comorbidities or, yeah, you know, the tighter your, uh, your criteria get, the harder it is to recruit people. That's been the experience here. Yeah, that's yeah, because every clinical trial you need to know exactly whether you're doing men and women of a particular age yeah. that either do or don't use these drugs and have, have or have not ever had these conditions. So We, we have a trial running looking at um, cannabinoids in insomnia, and that's obviously a very hard one to recruit for because there's a lot of requirements around how much sleep people have had in the preceding number of days. They have to attend a sleep center and actually, you know, have a bunch of EEGs all over the scalp. So, like, you know, <laughs> the studies like that are often harder to recruit for than, yeah. than you know, simple, um, a simpler study. If people are interested in volunteering or seeing if they might be eligible for something, how do they go about looking into it? I would say get onto the University of Sydney's website and check out um, both the, the subpages for the Brain and Mind Center and for the Lambert Initiative. Um, yeah, we, we post a lot of our uh, trials on Twitter. Um, Facebook, we used to post on Facebook. Now it has advertising rules around uh, <laughs> cannabis-related ads. So, so that was kind of an interesting discovery between a couple of studies. We had to switch from Facebook to Twitter, which yeah. doesn't have those sorts of exclusions. So yeah, I'd say get on the, the Sydney Uni website and have a look um, or, or our Twitter account. Again, stupid drug laws that don't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, yeah the, <laughs> the law is the law. And if people want to follow you personally and see what your research is all about, you're on Twitter? I, I am on Twitter, yeah. My handle is at Samuel underscore B underscore PhD. Because you're Dr. Samuel, obviously. Yeah, I am Dr. <laughs> Samuel. Yeah, it was like the first thing I could think of. I think there was, there was already another Samuel B, and I'm, yeah, that's all I could think of. So, yeah. <laughs> and I guess people can Google Samuel Bannister Research Lambert Initiative. You'll come up. And yeah, you'll, you'll find probably um, quite a few pages on Google, some... Some articles about some of the work I was doing in the US, a few articles um, that I've written with, with colleagues here in the conversation, but yeah, there should be plenty of material there about our research. All right, well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Sam. Yeah, thanks for having me on, James. Thank you guys for listening. Check our site online at insituscience.com or on social media at insituscience. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.